Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. Um, you're all here. God bless you on a, at a very busy time of the year. Um, but what could we possibly do better during the season of Advent as we approach Christmas than to turn to God's Word? So that's what we're going to do today. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we are working through the book of Acts. And we're going to pick up today at Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. And we're going to read through, uh, basically, the whole chapter. And then we're going to come back and take a look at it in closer detail. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 5, and we'll begin at verse 12. Just a reminder again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may have a different translation. That's perfectly fine. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them into public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look! The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. But God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. 
And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Uh, We said, as we looked at um, the first part of chapter 5 last week, that the church went through a difficult time. Up to this point, the church has sort of been a model community. Uh, We saw the church in Acts chapter 2. They were all together, uh, and they broke bread, and they rejoiced, and no one had any need. If anybody had any need, they distributed all of their common goods as necessary so that everyone's suffering was relieved. It was a remarkable church, and great things were being done. The church was growing exponentially. We saw that following the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were only about 120 followers. And then all of a sudden, as a result of Pentecost, that number grew to what? Well, 3,120. And we saw that that growth didn't stop there. After Peter preached in Solomon's portico, we're told that the the number grew by 2,000 more. So we're up to about 5,120 people. The church is going great guns. We said last week that while the church was a remarkable community, a godly community, an example, a model community, it was not a perfect community. And there is no such thing as a perfect church. If you've come to St. Philip's looking for it, keep looking. And if you go to St. Michael's looking for it, no offense to Al Zadig, but keep looking. There is no such thing as the perfect church. Why? Because there's no such thing as perfect people. If there were perfect people in perfect churches, there would be no need for a Savior. And that's what we saw in Acts chapter 5. Yes, the church had people like Peter and James in it, but it also had people like Ananias and Sapphira. And we took a good look at what happened there, and we talked about the gravity of sin, that sin is no small thing. Now, we acknowledged a couple of things about that whole incident with Ananias and Sapphira. First of all, we said it seemed like an extreme punishment on them for what we would regard probably as a rather trivial offense. All right, they should not have lied. But death seems a pretty extreme punishment for lying. I mean, how many of us have ever told a little white lie? Anybody out there? You, you never? Men, have you ever told a little white lie when your wife says, does this dress make me look fat? What do you say? <laughs> well, if you're wise, you know what you say. Oh, no, honey. But, you know, we say they're little white lies, but we realize there's no such thing as a little white lie. 
Jesus Christ was crucified as much for little white lies as he was for those big whoppers that we're concerned about. Sin is a serious matter, and we saw that here. And we said that God had to take drastic action, particularly at this stage in the life of the church. Because the church was just starting, there was no guarantee that this small group of believers there in Jerusalem would prosper and fill the earth. Especially if at the very beginning of their life, this cancer of deceit begins. And so God took drastic action. And that drastic action was that Ananias and Sapphira had to forfeit their lives. Now, I do want to say something about this that I didn't say last week. I think this is important. Ananias and Sapphira suffered for their sins. And we need to realize that there are consequences for our sins. This does not necessarily mean, and the Scripture never indicates to us, that they were necessarily damned. I think that's very important. The consequences of sin are what? They are death. And they would be damnation if it were not for Jesus Christ. We are never told that Ananias and Sapphira were not believers. Now, this is one of the great teachings of Martin Luther, that every single one of us, if we are believers, we are, he said, simo ustis et peccator. Do you know what that means? The Latin, it means to be simultaneously justified and yet a sinner. I mean, just because you become a believer, just because you become a Christian, do you stop sinning? Now, hopefully, as the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life and renovate the various parts of your life, you will begin to be a more holy person. Indeed, the closer you get to Christ, the more evident in your own life your sins will be. But that doesn't mean that any of us achieve perfection in this life. We are a work in progress. And so there's nothing to indicate here that Ananias and Sapphira suffered ultimate damnation. But they did suffer consequences in this life. Think about King David for a moment. King David was described as a man after God's own heart. Was he a perfect man? No. We all know that he had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, another man's wife, and then in order to cover it up, what did he do? Well, he had her husband Uriah killed. He tried to sweep it under the carpet. So he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. And yet when he confessed his sin, what did God do? Well, as we read in the New Testament, God was faithful and just and forgave him his sins. Psalm 51 is that great confession of sin. But did that mean that God removed all the consequences for David's actions? Absolutely not. David still suffered. His family life was in disarray as a consequence of this. His kingdom would eventually be divided at his death. There were all kinds of consequences that were the direct result of his sinful behavior. The ultimate the ultimate price may have been removed. But there were still temporal, temporal implications of his actions. And I think that's what we see here in Acts chapter 5. Well, as a result of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira, we're told that the church went through a very difficult time. And one of the things that Luke says is that fear gripped the heart of the people. And why not? <laughs> They all recognized that they were sinners. And if this could happen to Ananias and Sapphira, they knew full well that it could possibly happen to them. And so we're told fear gripped the life of the church. And this model community is suddenly filled with a great deal of fear and anxiety and dissension. 
And you might think that this was the end of the story. The wonderful thing about God is that His mercies are new every morning. He is the God whose property is what? Always to have mercy. Always to have mercy. And we see that God does indeed have mercy upon the church. Look at how Acts chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 reads. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife, that is Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes in, not knowing what had happened to her husband. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. Fear is not a good thing. Now, we're not talking about reverence here. We're talking about terror. Absolute terror gripped the life of the church as a consequence of these actions. And as I said, you might think that everything comes to a screeching halt. But look at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. God didn't just throw away this church because it had a problem. Let me tell you something. God doesn't just throw away our lives because we've sinned or because we've made mistakes. When we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, and oftentimes He can use us in spite of ourselves. That's the great message in Romans chapter 8, isn't it? Neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's my favorite phrase in that whole section nor anything else in all of creation. Well, guess what that means? That means you and I. We can't even separate ourselves from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says nothing else in all of creation. Well, aren't we a part of the creation? God was not going to abandon His church. The church may be unfaithful to God, but God is never unfaithful. We may be sinful, but God is always trustworthy. And God continued to work in a mighty and powerful way among the people. Many signs and wonders. We're told that up to this point, signs and wonders were being done. This is the first time we ever hear the word many. Many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. What does that mean? Well, I suspect that perhaps none of the believers joined them in Solomon's portico. It doesn't mean that people didn't join the church because verse 14 goes on to say that they did. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men. And here's something interesting, women. Now, we know that women were in the church, but this is the first time that there was a reference to a large number of women joining the church as well. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Verse 16, I think, is significant when it says, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. You'll recall at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus had made a promise to his disciples. It's the Acts version of the Great Commission. 
He said, you stay in Jerusalem and eventually the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And when he does, you will be my witnesses. Remember that? You will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. So first of all, right here in your own hometown, in Jerusalem, you're going to be my witnesses. But he says it's not going to stop there. Eventually, you're going to be my witnesses beyond Jerusalem, beyond your hometown, even in Judea and Samaria. Samaria to the north, Judea to the south. And indeed, that's what we see happening here. We're, telling, we're being told now that the word is getting out about what is happening in the church and to such a degree that people are coming from all around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, if you read through the Gospels, this is shades of Jesus, isn't it? Isn't that what happened when Jesus went? Wherever he went and he healed people, people came in droves to hear him. Uh, some years ago, I was in Capernaum. And um, as you know, Jesus had performed a great miracle there. Uh, he had healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. And um, if you go to Capernaum today, you can actually see the site of Peter's mother-in-law's house. Um, those of you who are going with me to the Holy Land in the spring, you're going to have an opportunity to stand right there uh, at the synagogue, or at least on the site of the synagogue where Jesus taught, and at the site of this house where this miracle took place. It's a rather strange site, to be perfectly honest with you. The Roman Catholics built a church there back in the 1960s. And if you know anything about Roman Catholic architecture from the 1960s, it was not necessarily a thing of beauty. This, this church, which sits right over the spot, looks like a giant, I kid you not, flying saucer. But it's sort of landed right down on top. And you go in, the whole thing's built in the round, and there's a glass floor, and you can look down into Peter's mother-in-law's house. It's, it's a marvelous thing to see, except for this church, which is just hideous. But I remember being there, and it was my first trip to the Holy Land, and, and our guide was teaching over here. It was Bishop Alden Hathaway, it was my bishop from Pittsburgh, and he was over here teaching, and all of a sudden I heard this uproar in the back. And I turned around, and there were about 200 Africans and they're standing there in front of Peter's mother-in-law's house, bringing in their sick and praising God and singing. And it just struck me. It was as though the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, it's 2,000 years later, and they're still coming to see him. They're still coming to see him and to feel the touch of his healing hand. Isn't that marvelous? Well, that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 5. They've heard about Peter. They've even gotten to the point where they're desperate, superstitious even, that as he walks through the street, hopefully his shadow will fall upon them. But the point that Luke is making here is that God did not abandon his church in the wake of this tragedy with Ananias and Sapphira. He continued to do extraordinary things, and to such a degree that it caught the attention of the authorities. And we see persecution. Now, we've already seen persecution in the life of the church as a result of that first recorded miracle in the book of Acts, where Peter and John had healed the man who was lame there begging for gold at the temple gate called Beautiful. And we're told that that caused such a commotion when Peter preached that sermon that the authorities dragged the apostles in and strictly warned them what? Not to preach anymore in that name. We don't want to hear any more about this Jesus. We've dealt with Jesus. We don't want to hear any more about Jesus. And so they were strictly ordered not to speak any more in the name. 
what did Peter and John and the rest do? Well, they said, well, you have to judge for yourself whether or not it's right for us to obey you or to obey God. And they went back and they told what had happened to the church. And the church rejoiced and prayed and God continued to work in and through them. Persecution, folks, is something that we should expect in the world today. If you're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ, you are going to suffer what Jesus Christ suffered. That's what he told his apostles. He said, if the world hated me, the world is also going to hate you. So we should not be surprised by persecution. That doesn't mean we need to relish it. There's no such thing, folks, as a self-made martyr. Now, some people would like to think there is, but there really isn't. There's no such thing as a self-made martyr. But we cannot avoid the fact that fidelity to the gospel will bring persecution and suffering. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. Jesus made this point very clear. He said, in this life, you will what? Have tribulation. He didn't say, in this life, you may have it. He didn't say, in this life, chances are you're going to have it. He said, in this life, you will have tribulation. But then he went on to say, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I want you to notice something. We've come far enough in the book of Acts to notice that there is a pattern thus far in these first five chapters. Luke shows us the church in two different contexts. He shows us first the church alone, the believers by themselves, what they did when they were by themselves. But then he shows us the church engaging the world. And this is the pattern that we see in the first five chapters of the book of Acts. Now, you have to get to this point in order to see the pattern, but it's a very clear pattern. For example, in Acts chapter 1, what do we have? We have the apostles, the church alone, just that 120 believers immediately following the resurrection. And Jesus giving them that great promise in that intervening period between his resurrection and his ascension. He's teaching them. He's appearing to them over the course of those 40 days, and he is telling them that they will be his witnesses. But it's just the church. It's not the church engaging the world. But then you get to Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in that upper room, and what happens? Peter stands up, and he delivers a sermon. And, and the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in flames of fire. And we're told that they are able to speak in various languages so that all of the people of Jerusalem and all those who had come from the festival were able to hear them what? In their own languages. So this is not the church alone. This is now the church engaging the world. And we saw how the church grew exponentially as a consequence from 120 to 3,120 believers. Then you get to Acts chapter 2, and you have that marvelous description of the early church. But again, it's the church now alone again. It's not the church out there in the world. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who were believed had all things together, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So you have the church alone again. People are adding to the number, but they're not out there being proactive. It's just the church by itself. But then you get to Acts chapter 3. 
And that great miracle there at the temple gate called Beautiful, at the Golden Gate, where they heal the lame man. He's so enthralled by what they've done that they, he follows them into, temp, into the temple precincts. He's jumping, praising God, causing a commotion. A huge crowd gathers. And what does Peter do? He preaches that great sermon, engaging the world. He's engaging the world and experiencing persecution. And then you get to Acts chapter 4. And what do you find? Well, after they are strictly instructed not to speak any more in the name, what do they do? They go back to the church, and you see the church alone, praying for them and praying for strength and rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And then we get to Acts chapter 5, and what do we see? We see the church again, active in the world, signs and wonders being done, Peter going through the streets, people bringing in the sick, the ill, the hurting, and all of a sudden it causes so much commotion that the apostles find themselves arrested. Now, why am I pointing this pattern out to you? Because I think it highlights a necessary balance that has to exist in the life of the church. There has to be a balance. Most of the time, the problems in our lives and the problems in the church result as a result of imbalance. This is true in so many different ways. Think of the Jewish religious leaders. The problem for them oftentimes was an imbalance, wasn't it? On the one hand, you have the Sadducees, who are what? The liberals. They're way over here. They don't believe anything. What do you have over here on this side? Well, you have the Pharisees. They believe everything, every jot and tittle of the law. And you'll notice that Jesus didn't get along with either of them. It wasn't that Jesus came to nullify the law, as the Sadducees would do, he had come, as the Pharisees claimed, to fulfill the law, but not to fulfill it in the way that they expected. Jesus had this remarkable balance in his life, and because he had that remarkable balance, he had something that we all long for. He had serenity. How many of you long for serenity in your own lives? More than anything else, that's what we want, don't we want serenity, and so often it's the result of not having balance. Well, churches sometimes are a little imbalanced. You can have a church that is very orthodox in its theology. It's true to the Bible. It believes all of the right doctrines. There's not an ounce of heresy that comes out of the pulpit. But that church is so heavenly-minded, it's of no earthly good to anybody. They're so inward-focused, they never make a difference in the world. On the other hand, you can have churches that will tell you that it's all about being busy, making a difference in the world, and they are out there doing wonderful works. But because they are not grounded in the teachings of Holy Scripture, because they are not grounded in the Word and in the power of the Holy Spirit, they're out doing those things, but they're doing them, first of all, in their own power, which means they'll never be as effective as they could be. And number two, they will be doing them oftentimes for all the wrong reasons. You know, we tend to think that the only thing that matters is doing good works. That's not necessarily the case. God is not simply concerned with what we do. He is concerned with why we do it. Here's something from the Book of Common Prayer that I think is, is very interesting. 
It's found in the 39 articles on page 870 if you want to reference it at a future point. And here's what the English reformer said. Albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith, and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ, because they spring out necessarily from a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree is discerned by the fruit. In other words, good works that spring from faith in Christ are pleasing to God. But, of works before justification, the very next article reads, works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of His Holy Spirit are not pleasant to God. For as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither can they make men meet to receive grace. Yea, rather for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not but that they have the nature of sin. God is not simply concerned with what we do. He wants to know why we're doing it. It's the motivation that matters. Men, you know this to be true. Women, you know this to be true. If the only reason your husband buys you a Valentine's Day card is because he does not want to hear about it for the next six months. Is that pleasing to you? Or is it pleasing to you to know that he is buying you a card or a gift or taking you to dinner, not because he has to, but because he wants to? Which one do you want? You see, one is sheer drudgery. One is a service of perfect freedom. We... Um, used to go to an extended family gathering every Thanksgiving. Um, God was merciful in making me a rector so that I couldn't go anymore. <laughs> but we used to go to this thing up in North Carolina with Kristen's family, and we would get together about once a year, and we had little kids, and it was amazing. We'd go in there, and all these ants would be there, these, these old ants that the kids hadn't seen, you know, but once a year, and they didn't remember them. And Aunt so-and-so would say, oh, come up and give me a kiss. And the kids were terrified. Now, what did we do? We said, get up there and give her a kiss. Go on. I don't want to give her a kiss. You give her a kiss or you're going to get it. And so up they'd go and they'd give Aunt so-and-so a kiss. And then they'd turn around and wipe it off, which didn't help any. But then Grandma would walk into the room. And all of a sudden, arms fly open. And they go up and they jump into Grandma's arms and cover her with a kiss. Now, both of those were kisses, but one was a real kiss and one was not. See, one is a service of perfect freedom. One is sheer drudgery. It's something that we do out of a sense of guilt, out of a sense of obligation. That's why I always say, you know, God doesn't need your money. The church needs your money, but God doesn't need your money. Church treasurer likes any kind of a giver. God likes the cheerful giver. He's interested in what we are doing, what's going on in our hearts, what is motivating us. So the church has to have this balance. There are times when the church needs to do just what we're doing here, and that is study God's Word. We need to go deep in our faith. It's not enough, particularly in this day and age, to know what you believe. 
The old bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, let me tell you, that is not true. Not in the dawn of the 21st century. God may have said it, you may believe it, but that by no means settles it. It's not enough to know what you believe. You need to know why you believe it. You need to be able to give an answer for the hope that is within you, which means that as the church, we have to be willing at times to go deep, to study God's Word, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it. Some years ago, there was a movement, the WWJD movement. What would Jesus do? How many of you had one of those bracelets or something like that? What would Jesus do? There's nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that if you have to stop and ask yourself what Jesus would do, you are not spending enough time with him. The New Testament talks about thinking with the mind of Christ. If you're spending time with Christ, if he is making a difference in your life, you will know intuitively what Jesus would do. You don't have to stop and ask, what would Jesus do? You'll know what Jesus would do. That doesn't necessarily mean you'll do it. But you will know. So there are those times when the church must go deep and we must study God's Word. But there does come a time when the church must also go out in the world and make a difference. We cannot be insular. Jesus' last words to His disciples were what? Go into the world. Now His command to Israel was, come out from among them and be ye separate. But for the new Israel, for the church, it is to go ye out into the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. And we need both of those things. The whole purpose of this Bible study, my friends, is to equip you. Is to equip you and the church, the saints, for the work of ministry. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, once said, the church is the only body, the only organization that exists, listen to this, for the sake of those who are not yet its members. Now you think about that for a minute. I was sitting in a staff meeting not long ago, and I said something about, we need to do some more advertising for this Lessons in Carol service we had. And somebody said, oh, we can't do that. I said, what do you mean we can't do that? We can't do that. There won't be enough room for our own people. And I said, what a marvelous problem to have. I said, I will gladly stand and give somebody my seat at the altar. Church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members. So we see this balance here in Acts chapter 5 in the life of the church. Let us strive in our own personal lives for that kind of balance. As individuals, we need to spend time alone with God. You cannot neglect it. Otherwise, you become very busy, but not particularly productive. On the other hand, we cannot be so consumed with heaven that we forget that God called us to be witnesses here on earth. And so we have to have this balance in our life, and we see this balance here in the book of Acts. Now, in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 and following, uh, we have two main sections. Well, let me just pause there and see if there are any questions about anything that I've said thus far. You know, you don't often get an opportunity to talk back at me, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. Lon? Well, 
Well, I think unconditional love by God leads to a service of perfect freedom. But what I'm trying to say is that we are called to serve God as Christians. Our lives are not our own. But the question is, do you serve God out of a sense of obligation and a sense of fear? Or do you do that out of a sense of love and gratitude for what he's done? It has everything to do with the motivation. It's his unconditional love for us that when you realize God loves us in spite of the fact that we're not lovable, you know, most of the time that's what we think. Well, we're lovable people, that's why God loves us. No. The whole message of the cross is that we're not lovable, but God loves us in spite of that. The whole point is that we don't have to get our act together. And because he loves us with that just extravagant, lavish love, you find that you want to serve him, not because you have to, because you're free. Well, I'm not sure they loved her unconditionally. She was pretty extravagant with them, I have to admit. At times, it created a problem, to be perfectly honest with you. I think that, yeah, I think what they had was an unfettered love, an unfettered love. I think I understand what you're saying, but yeah. Right. And then we talked about how there were 12 disciples, there were 120 believers, and then 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. So what did John's, all his preaching and all his followers, where were they in the mix? Well, some of them certainly followed. Uh, certainly some of them followed Jesus Christ. Some of them perhaps did not. Um, one of the things that you'll notice if you get through is that there were a lot of people... First, first of all, I think you have to say a couple of things about John. We're, we're sort of getting off track, but this is good. A couple of things we have to say about John. This past Sunday's gospel lesson was very interesting. Uh, you'll recall that John the Baptist was placed in prison. Now, he was imprisoned in a desert fortress. King Herod built a lot of these. You know, the old expression is, just because I'm paranoid does not mean they're not after me. Well, that's pretty much the way Herod looked at life. Just because I'm paranoid did not mean they're not after me. And he built a whole string of these fortresses out through Judea and other places that he could flee to in the case that he ran afoul of the Romans. And uh, John the Baptist was placed in one of these prisons. And you all know why John was there. It was because he was speaking against Herod's unique domestic situation. <laughs> and so he was imprisoned. And it's while that he's there that he begins to have doubts about Jesus. I think when you read through that gospel lesson, there's no doubt John is really soul-searching. Was I wrong? Because when Jesus first appeared, what did John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the man. And when Jesus came down to be baptized, it was John who said, no, this can't happen. You should be baptizing me, not the other way around. And Jesus said, no, this is to fulfill all righteousness. So initially, John thought, he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. But then, when he's locked away in prison, and isn't this true in our own lives? It's so easy to believe in God when everything's going your way. When everything's bright and shining, you've just hit the lottery and you didn't even buy the ticket. I mean, everybody's rejoicing that, oh, there's God in his heaven, all's right with the world. It's harder to believe when things are going south. When things are not going well, 
when the doctor's just diagnosed a, a serious illness, then it's a whole lot harder to believe. That's why C.S. Lewis says you have to be very careful because your emotions are not a good judge of the authenticity of faith. So be very careful about that. So I think John was locked away and he's wondering to himself, oh, what's Jesus doing? And you have to remember something else about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was most likely a part of a group known as the Essenes, a group of people who absolutely believed that when the Messiah came, he was going to restore the Davidic dynasty. He was going to drive the Romans out, and he was going to reestablish the Davidic dynasty, and he was going to purge and purify the religion of Israel. All that buying and selling that was taking place in the temple precincts and so forth. And here's Jesus. He's on the scene, but he's not doing it. The Romans are still there. The temple worship is still corrupt. John's locked away in a prison. The sword of Damocles, as it were, hanging over his head, and he's wondering, did I get it wrong? It's one of the most inspirational passages in the Bible to see somebody as great as John the Baptist. Jesus said, of all the men born of women, there's nobody ever greater than John the Baptist. To see somebody as great as John the Baptist still struggling. How many of you struggle in your life? How many of you just never have any doubts, any questions? Your, your faith is rock solid. How, let me see a show of hands of anybody out there. Because if that's the case... The next lesson is about lying again. So we, we, we all have these issues. And John had those issues. Now, what was Jesus' response to John? He said, you go and you tell John what you see and hear. That the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the dead are raised. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, you can only understand the significance of that not simply because of the signs and the wonders, but because earlier in that same gospel, Jesus had gone to his home, to Nazareth, and he had been handed the scroll to read. And it was a messianic prophecy, and he had unrolled that scroll. And he had read about when the Messiah comes, the Messiah would be the one who would what? Open the eyes of the blind, proclaim liberty to captives, Raise people from the dead. So Jesus' response to John is, you want to know if I'm the Messiah? What did the Old Testament say the Messiah would do? Those are the things that I'm doing. And the marvelous thing, my friends, is that Jesus Christ still does that. He still opens the eyes of the blind. The real enemy of the Jewish people were not the Romans. It was the sin in their own lives. The problem was not on the outside. The problem was on the inside. And so that's what he proclaims. Now, some of John's followers follow Jesus as a consequence of that. In fact, you might even say that the core of Jesus' initial followers were John the Baptist. Some of the disciples, for example, were the followers of John initially. But we do know that a great many people fell away from Jesus. Remember, those crowds that numbered in excess of 5,000 when Jesus fed the five, with the five loaves of bread and the two small fish, remember that? By the time you get to the crucifixion, we're down to about 120 people. What happened to all those people? Well, the Gospel of John says, when you get to the bread of life discourse, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger. Whoever places their faith in me shall never thirst. We're told that many of them said, who is this man that he claims to be the bread of life? And the Gospel says, and many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. They were offended by Jesus' claims. 
and they were extraordinary claims. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. Everybody else is a bad shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. I'm not just a way, I'm the only way. Every other way is a dead end. Well, how do you think that sort of thing went over? It went over about as well as it goes over today. We are taught to believe that all religions basically are equal. Oh yes, we're all going to end up in the same place. All faith, all rivers of faith eventually flow into the same great ocean. Oh, some routes may be more circuitous than others, but eventually we'll all get there. Jesus says, no, you won't. He says there's only one way. So I think with John the Baptist followers, some of them certainly, some of the apostles, stayed true to the end. But a great many people fell away. And people still fall away today. It's one of the reasons why I'm, one of my favorite parables is Jesus' parable of the sower. I think a better way to describe it is the parable of the four soils. Because if you think about it, the emphasis is upon the soil, not on the sower. But Jesus called it the parable of the sower, so who am I to disagree? <laughs> but you think about that parable for just a moment. Jesus said, a sower went out to sow seed. Now, who's the sower? The sower is the one who proclaims the word. What's the seed? It's the word of God. Now, what's wonderful about that is the parable's not about the ability of the sower, or the power of the seed, which is a great comfort to me as a pastor. If your salvation was contingent on my ability to proclaim the gospel to you, I could not handle that burden. But my job is to do what? Throw out the seed. And it's going to land somewhere. And Jesus said there were four types of soil on which the seed lands. Some of it falls on the hard path and he said, this is like the hard heart. It's become so hardened by sin that the word is proclaimed, but it just sort of glances off. And the birds of the air come down and snatch it away. He said, some of that seed fell on what? On rocky soil. And it sprung up quickly, but it didn't have root. You know, there are people like that. There's an initial excitement when they hear the gospel. They come to church and they're all excited about it. But then all of a sudden, you notice one Sunday they're not there. Ah, well, they're just traveling. Then they come, they're there for two Sundays, and then all of a sudden they're gone for three. And before long, you don't see them at all anymore. Jesus said, some of the seed fell on that rocky soil, and the sun came out, and when the sun came out, and it was scorched because it had no root, it withered and it died. He said, some of the seed fell on good soil, but was infested with thorns. And when it grew up, the thorns and the thistles strangled out the life of that plant. Jesus said, this is like people who are so concerned with the cares and the occupations of this life, the worries of this life, worldly possessions and wealth. And he said, but some of the time, the seed falls on good soil. And it produces 30, maybe 100 fold. Now, if you think about that, and I don't know how far you want to press this, but if you think about that, that means the vast majority of the time the word does not take root, does it? <laughs> Three quarters of the time, at least according to Jesus' parable, it doesn't take root. 
only a quarter of the time. But what's the job of the messenger? Throw it out. Where it lands is not our business. That's the work of the Lord. Nobody is ever going to hear, and you've heard me say this, and you'll hear me say it ad nauseum till the day I die. No one is ever going to hear on that last great day, well done, thou good and successful servant. God is not worried about success. He's worried about faithfulness. Our job is to be faithful. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So that was probably much longer than you anticipated getting in terms of an answer. Any other questions? And after that, as with Jesus, they dare not ask him any more questions. So, Okay, well, thank you. I mean, those are important things. And sometimes what happens in the course of a teaching like this is something is pricked in your conscience and you need an answer to it, and that's perfectly fine. It's good to do that. All right, well, Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42, as I said a moment ago, is basically split into two main sections. Uh, the first section has to do with the restoration and blessing taking place in the life of the church, and we see that in verses 11 through 16. Yes, great fear, fear came and filled the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things, but God nevertheless continued to do many signs and wonders regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's porticos, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And the people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So we see that God had not forsaken the church. But as we saw earlier, no good deed goes unpunished. And as God continues to pour his Holy Spirit into the life of the church, all of a the sudden they catch the notice of the authorities. Uh, there's an old expression uh, from World War II Bomber pilots used to refer to it. They said, you know you're catching, you know you're over the target when you're catching flack. You only catch flack when you're over the target. You know what flack is? It's anti-aircraft fire. The bombers would go out, it would be a smooth, smooth journey, sometimes for hundreds of miles. But when all of a sudden they begin to catch flack, anti-aircraft fire, and they're being Blown apart, they know that they are what? They are close to the target. Let that be an inspiration in your life. <laughs> if there are times when you're trying to be faithful to Jesus Christ and you're facing increased persecution, chances are you are over the target. You're over the target with the people that you are ministering to. And that's what was happening here. They were over the target and they began to catch flack. Why are they catching flack? Because they've gone out and preached in that name they were ordered not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here and suggest to you that every time you go out, you're going to face opposition. One of the things that you read in the New Testament is that there will be seasons of opposition. There are times when things are relatively smooth for the life of the church, but then there are times when things are not altogether smooth in the life of the church. It doesn't happen all the time. There are seasons, and we know that seasons come and seasons go. What season are we living in right now in the life of the church? I think we are heading into a season where there will be increased opposition to the gospel. I think we're already seeing that in the culture, aren't we? Over and over again. It seems that it's, it's, it's fashionable or it's unfashionable to criticize anything except the Christian faith. 
my goodness, you dare not mock anything about the Muslim faith. That's considered insensitive, but it's perfectly legitimate to mock the Christian faith. And particularly at this time of the year, to mock the birth of Christ, the virgin, virginal conception, the virgin birth, etc. And so I think we are probably heading into one of these seasons in the life of the church. And here in these early days, they were in one of those seasons. The more they began to make an impact, and by the way, the devil does not take note of you if you're not making an impact. He doesn't care. He's got other fish to fry. It's when you begin to make an impact that the devil takes notice. And that's what was happening here in the life of the church. They began to catch flack for a number of reasons. One, they were preaching in the name of Jesus and healing people in the name of Jesus, and they'd been strictly ordered not to do that. Furthermore, they were catching flack because they were talking about the resurrection. But the high priest rose up, verse 17, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the party that rejected the resurrection. So we know that one of the reasons that the Sadducees were jealous, most of the time in the New Testament, it's the Pharisees that are after Jesus. But here we see it's the Sadducees as well. Why? Because these apostles were not simply preaching in the name of Jesus. They were preaching that in the name of Jesus there was resurrection. And it wasn't just a future event. It had happened right here in Jerusalem beneath their very noses. That one they had put to death was raised bodily again. And so they were offended. Indeed, they're told we were filled with jealousy. It's interesting, isn't it? But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. What were they jealous about? Well, they were jealous, first of all, that they were proclaiming all of these wonderful things in the name of Jesus and not in their name. They were of the priestly class. They were supposed to be the leaders of the people, and yet they're proclaiming all of these wonderful things, all these miracles are being performed in the name of a man who'd never been to a rabbinical academy, who'd never been officially licensed to preach, who'd never traveled more than 100 miles from the place that he was born, and yet the whole world was going after him in droves. Jealousy, it is a terrible thing in the life of any person, any community, any church. They were also jealous that they could not do the works that the apostles were doing. Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 5 and flip over, if you will, to Acts chapter 13 for just a moment. I want to show you something here. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and his traveling companions, be some time before we get to Acts chapter 13, but in Acts chapter 13, Paul and his traveling companion, Barnabas, they were on their first missionary journey. They had left uh, the church in Antioch. There were two Antiochs in the ancient world. They left the church in Antioch of Syria. They traveled down the coast to a small town called Seleucia. They took a boat from Seleucia over to the Isle of Cyprus. From Cyprus, they went back up to the continent, and they visited the second Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. And that's where we are here in Acts chapter 13. And they were there in Pisidian Antioch, and they went into the synagogue as was their custom, and they were invited to preach which they did. And it was a marvelous sermon. The people were astonished by this message of Jesus that the Messiah had come. And look at how it ends. Look at how that first Sabbath ended. Verse 42, 
And as they went out, that is, the services ended, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after a meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. What a marvelous church service. They got to the end of that church service, and the people were saying, more, more. I think I, saw, I told some of you, that is every preacher's dream. When you finish the sermon, they're shouting, more, more. Most of the time, they're looking at their watches, wondering when, when. But they were shouting, more, more. They were enthralled by what had happened. But look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The word got out. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Jealousy. And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling it. What were they jealous about? They were jealous because services at the synagogue were held every Sabbath. Same crowd showed up. Bring in this hotshot preacher from Jerusalem, and next thing you know, everybody's there. And they were jealous. Jealous of what God was doing. Before they were enthralled with the message, now they're filled with jealousy. And they who had begged for more are now saying, what? You've got to go. And indeed they did. They expelled them from that region. Sounds remarkably similar to what happened with Jesus, doesn't it? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Six days later, it shouts of crucify him, crucify him. Jealousy. You know, jealousy is a cancer in the life of any community, folks. And it is something that will eat away at the fabric of unity in a church. To be jealous of each other. To be jealous of each other's gifts. This is why the Apostle Paul says that God gives us all gifts, and they're not the same. They are gifts that complement, not necessarily duplicate. Well, at any rate, the leaders were very jealous, jealous of what the apostles were doing. And the result was, when you're jealous, what do you do? Well, you've got to do something about those you're jealous of. You either try to um, subvert them, you either try to ridicule them, or in this case, because they were the authorities, they tried to silence them. We've already seen that they had been detained on a previous occasion. Detained. Arrested. We're told, remember, the temple guard came with them, and they were brought before the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas, the same body that they brought Jesus before. They were dragged before the Sanhedrin, and they were detained. They were never charged, but they were kept overnight, and then they were told what? Don't speak anymore in this name. So initially, it's detained. But they discovered that these men are not stopping. They are continuing to preach. So what happens? Well, we've got to take action again, but we've got to be stricter. So now they are arrested, chapter 5, verse 18, and they are what? They are beaten. And eventually we're going to see in verse 5, verse 33, they are not only arrested, they are now threatened with their very lives. The officials are jealous, and the officials are afraid. And I want you to understand that's very significant. We'll get to it next week. They're very jealous. Or not next week. We're off next week. Excuse me. After Christmas. They are very jealous and they are very afraid. 
it's helpful to know what is motivating somebody when they're against you. More often than not, when we go out to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in a world that is hostile to it, and great things begin to happen, what's really happening is that people are jealous and they are afraid. They're jealous of what God is doing in and through us, and they are afraid of what that means for their own lives. I remember reading an interview of a famous BBC reporter who was uh, a renowned atheist. And he had gone to um, an Evensong. They were doing a special on the Church of England, and he went to an Evensong service at York Minster Cathedral. And he said he went in there, and he was listening to the children sing these hymns, and he was listening to the music, and he was listening to the words, and he said, all of a sudden, I began to feel something stirring in my very heart. And he said, I had to get out of that church. And somebody asked him why, and he said, because I knew that if I bought into this, it would require a change in my life, and I was not ready to change. Understand that when you begin to catch flack, it's probably because you're over the target. People are being filled with jealousy. They're being pricked in their conscience. I'll leave you with this one thought. The story of the Apostle Paul's conversion is told at least three times in the book of Acts. And on the first two occasions, it's told almost word for word in the same way. But the last time, Paul is standing before King Agrippa. And Agrippa says to him, why is it that you persist in this message? Look at what it's brought you. You've been beaten. You've been, you know, you've been flogged. You've been imprisoned. All these terrible things have happened to you, Paul. Why do you continue to do this? And how does Paul respond? Paul basically responds, not by preaching the gospel, but by simply telling the story of what Jesus Christ had done in his life. And there was this one point where he says, and I encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know the story. Paul's making his way toward Damascus to arrest the Christians, and a bright light shines about him, and he fell on the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, up to that point, the story is identical to what you find the two previous occasions. But this time, Paul adds something unique. God says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. That's a critical verse. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. What does it mean to kick against the goad? In an agrarian culture when you're working with livestock and with animals, sometimes you'd get a stubborn animal. And so you had a stick with a sharpened point. It was called a goad, and you would goad the animal on. But every now and then, you'd get a really stubborn animal that would do what? Kick against the goad. To its own peril, its own pain, and its own destruction. God had been working on the heart of the Apostle Paul all along. And Paul was kicking against the goads until God finally, no offense, knocked him off his ass onto his <laughs> and brought a change in his life. Acts 26. So what I'm saying to you is, be of good cheer. Go out into the world. You are called to be witnesses. Witnesses to the resurrection. Understand that you are going to catch flack, but if you're catching flack, you're over the target. 
And remember this, the word of the Lord never comes back void. It will always prosper in the purpose for which God sent it. Your job is not to be successful as Christians. Your job is to be faithful. Let God worry about the success part. And that's what the apostles did. And my friends, in spite of it all, you and I are here today to tell the tale. What a marvelous message. One last thing. If you think, well, I'm just not equipped to do that. I don't have that theology degree. I don't have the knowledge of the Bible that the preacher has. Let me ask you a question. How many of you can testify to the fact that God has changed your life? Nobody can dispute that story. If God has changed your life, nobody can come along and say, no, he didn't. All you have to do is what the Apostle Paul did before Agrippa. Tell that person, whoever it is, this is what God did for me. And he who opened the eyes of the blind still does it today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the example of the early church. Not a perfect church, not perfect people, but redeemed people. And we here at St. Philip's, St. Michael's, wherever we may be, the Salvation Army, Lord, we give you thanks that we are redeemed people. We're not perfect, but it is your pleasure to use the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are. So use us, Lord, in spite of ourselves. Grant us the grace to be willing to suffer all things for the sake of Christ. And when we begin to catch flack, grant us the grace like Peter and John and the others to rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ the one who suffered all things for us, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, we do not meet next week. Check the church's calendar. We will meet after Christmas. So, bless you.